Thank you, my dear friend. And thank you, dear saints. It has been a tremendous joy to be here and just see what the Lord is continuing to do in your midst for the glory of his name. And I echo everything that the other missionaries have said about your kindness. We are indebted to you. We are partners with you in the gospel of God. And what a gospel it is. Last Christmas Day, the James Webb Telescope was launched into space. And it traveled on its journey and took a month to arrive one million miles from this earth. Unlike the Hubble, which is orbiting around the earth, the James Webb Telescope is tracking with this earth in orbit around the sun. And if you have not taken the time to go online and begin to look at the pictures that are being sent back to Earth from this telescope, you need to. We are seeing deeper in the space than any generation has ever seen. And those that do not know God are thinking that somehow this telescope is going to give us the origin of the universe and help us understand how we all got here and how the heavens got here. But my friends, God is allowing this generation to look into deep space and see things that other eyes have never seen. That he might declare to every generation the glory of his name. For the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, this expanse of heaven that he has been beating out and expanding, is testifying to us all of his power and his divinity. But our God has not only used the heavens to speak to us of his glory, of his character, of his attributes, of his might. But our God has used the word that we might better know him. And I would like to read a text from this great book of Romans, this book on the gospel, this book that takes the good news of God given to the Jewish community, a privileged people. And because of the grace of God, we hold in our hands this book. And in this book of Romans, we find that this good news of God is not only for the Jewish people, it's for the nations of the world. 
And Paul would write as he opens this book on the great doctrine of salvation that his passion is that this message would come to the nations of the world. And that these nations of the world, the Gentiles, along with the Jewish community, will glorify God for his great mercy and grace. And in the 15th chapter, I read this text that I hope somehow tonight we can learn more how to glorify God. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And that is really what it's all about. Can you begin to thank God tonight that our Lord Jesus Christ has accepted us? And in the context, it was that he had accepted Jewish people and he accepted Gentile people. For the purpose of God has been a love for all the nations of the world. Not just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God's great grace has been for all humanity. And if the Lord Jesus Christ can accept the people of God for the glory of God, the text calls on us to accept one another. Just as Christ accepted us for the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. And he who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. What a text. While the heavens will declare to us the power of God and the deity of God, the glory of God, the character of God, there are two aspects of his glory that I would like to drill down into with you tonight. And that is the aspect of God's truthfulness and faithfulness to his word. That our God is a God that keeps covenant. And then I would have us see from the text tonight that our God is a God of mercy. The attack on humanity from the very beginning 
has been a challenge of the Word of God. Remember how Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, Hath God said, You can't trust God's Word. You can't believe God. Matter of fact, God wants to keep something from you. And when you look through the thousands of years of human history, that has always been his intent. To get us human beings to question the word of God. Can we believe God? Can we trust God? You look at our culture today, and it seems as though everything that is happening in our culture is a direct attack on what God has said. Over and over again, the Bible says God made man and woman, male and female. That God established marriage. That God instituted government to punish the evildoer. I mean, we could just go on and on and on, and we are seeing great energy that takes an opposite stance against what God has said. We say, where is this all coming from? And we need to remember tonight that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. But we are wrestling against principalities and powers. We are wrestling against Satan himself that Ephesians chapter 2 says is bringing the energy to all of this. It has been his purpose to cause us to not obey and believe. And this text tells me that God wants to manifest to us tonight that He's believable, that He is the God of truth. And that he's the God of mercy. Verse 8 says, I, I say that Christ, now notice the text says, has become a servant. Has become a servant. And stop and reflect tonight that the sovereign became a servant. That the Son became a servant. That the one who was the splendor of God in eternity past, who shared the glory of the Father, became a servant. The one who was the splendor of God in time, the one who is the exact representation of the Father became a servant. The one who is the sustainer of all things. Who keeps the earth tilted at 23 degrees, rotating on an axis, and has done that for thousands of years? Who grants to us the four seasons of the earth? 
Who hangs all these galaxies up there? I mean, there are galaxies out there and clusters of stars. I mean, there are things out there that look like spider webs in the heavens. And it mirrors the spider webs on earth. For he's the same creator of heaven and earth. And there are galaxies that swirl like a seashell or look like a fern. For the one who puts the fern on earth is the one that makes the galaxies in the heavens. And they are there. And they hang in space. And he continues to expand it all. He is the sustainer. And yet he became the servant. And if the great God of glory became a servant to demonstrate the glory of God, then who are we? Do we consider ourselves servants for the glory of God? The Savior became the servant. And I'm moved by that. For the passion was for the truth of God. And he came to his own. He came to the Jewish community, my friends, because he was Jewish. And what he came to do for his people allows the Gentiles to find mercy. I have been grafted in to the vine. I was afar off, but I've been brought near. I was not a part of the people of God, but now I'm a part of the people of God. And all of the promises that God made to His people, He is fulfilling. And they're for me. This book, not only the heavens, but this book is a book of the glory of God. And a book that lets us understand that God is a covenant-keeping God. Whatever He says He will do, He will do. Is that settled in your heart and your mind? Do you believe God? I look at this book, we call it the Bible, made up of two sections. I like the term an old covenant and a new. Those are expressions that are found in this word. But a section that's called a new covenant. What is that all about? And then I have a section that is called the old. And I discover when I get three chapters into this section of this book, Right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, they listened to the arch enemy. They disobeyed. And they fell into sin. And sin opened wide a door. And death came into humanity. And every single one of us in this room are physical descendants of that first couple. And what he did affected all of us. 
He is the head of the human race. He is the first man. But thank God there is a second. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God he's not only the second man. He is the last man. And the God who made heaven and earth deals with us all in our relationship to one of these two men. Adam and Christ. And there are only two places in the entire Bible where you read the full expression, this is the book of the generation of. And it's in the first book of the Bible, Genesis and it's found in Genesis chapter 5, and it's the genealogy of Adam. Now you will find the expression, the generation of, several times in Genesis. But the full expression, this is the book of the generation of, once in Genesis and once in Matthew chapter 1. Where it says, this is the book of the generation of Jesus the Christ. For there are only two men in human history that really matter in the economy of God. Adam and Christ. And when he disobeyed God, and, and his disobedience impacts all of his people, at the moment that he sinned, God came along in Genesis chapter 3 and he made a promise. God made a promise that he would send someone who would reverse what Adam did. And he would be the seed of a woman. And you come to Genesis chapter 4 when, when Eve gives birth to Cain. And she says, I've received the man. And you can translate it either from the Lord or I've received the man, even the Lord. And Adam and Eve are longing and looking for the promised Redeemer, someone that could reverse the curse of the fall. They were looking. They only identified the wrong. It was not Cain. And you know the story of Cain and Abel. And you know that Abel understood the gospel of God. Hearing the great promise from his parents of the Redeemer that would come. The one whose, whose life and death would reverse the curse. And in response, he offers a lamb. A blood sacrifice. Knowing that a substitute was on his way who would give up his life. Who would assume the death sentence. But oh, not Cain. God would look at his sacrifice and look at his heart. And Cain would bring the work of his hands. And God had no regard for Cain. And the book says that Cain was separated from the presence of God. What a covenant promise. You continue to read through our Bible. And you get into the history of humanity and you don't have to go too far. 1,656 years and you're introduced to coming judgment. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made man and was grieved in his heart. Can you imagine that? I will blot out man. 
I am sorry that I have made him. But would he blot out man? No, he had made a promise that he would reverse what Adam did. That he would send the Redeemer and he hadn't come yet. Then I love what else the Bible says. It says that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And it's after he found grace in the eyes of God that the book says he was a righteous man. And God would choose that man and his wife, his three sons and their three wives, and he would spare them from his judgment. Is it possible to be spared from the judgment of God? Is it possible for you and me to be spared from the wrath of God? Indeed it is. And Noah is spared. And God comes along after that flood and makes a covenant promise to Noah. And he gives us a sign. And he promises that he will not destroy humanity with a flood. And he hangs a rainbow up there. And every time you look at that rainbow, you remain, remind yourself that God is a covenant-keeping God. And he comes along and he addresses the three sons of Noah. And he makes a promise. And that promise is that God himself is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Three sons of Noah, he eliminates two-thirds of the human race, focuses on Shem, and says that this Redeemer is going to come, and it's going to be a descendant of Shem. Have you ever wondered why in the Word of God, after that promise, that you meet a man by the name of Abraham? Twelve chapters into the Bible, and you meet Abraham. Why? Because he's a descendant of Shem. God has made a covenant promise. He's going to reverse the curse. And he'll do it through a descendant of Shem. And we continue to read. And we look at what God promised to Abraham. Makes another covenant promise to Abraham. Comes to him in the 12th chapter. And he says, Abraham, I want you to know that you're going to have a descendant. You're going to have a seed. And Abraham, your descendant, is going to be a blessing to how many people? All the world. All the nations. Abraham, your descendant, is going to be your savior. You will say, well, Bill, listen, Abraham didn't know that. He didn't know about the coming Redeemer. I beg to pardon. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writing on the great theme of the gospel. And he says that any gospel that is other than the gospel that he preaches is a false gospel. Right there in that book, he tells us that Abraham had the same gospel he was preaching preached to him. And the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6 says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. 
Can you imagine Abraham hearing from God himself that his descendant was going to be his savior and not only his, but a blessing for all the nations of the world? No wonder the text says Abraham believed God. And the moment that he believed the gospel message, the book tells us that God credited something to him. What did he credit? Righteousness. And it was not Abraham's righteousness, my friends. It was the righteousness of none other than the coming Redeemer. What a covenant promise. He renews it with Isaac and he renews it with Isaac's son, Jacob. And he comes along and he promises that one of the sons of Jacob will be the father of the Redeemer, the lineage of Messiah. And in Genesis chapter 49, he says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto him shall the gathering of the multitudes of the people be. He preached Christ. And you know the story that the Redeemer would come through Isaac, through Jacob, the people of God, the Israel of God, the Prince of God. And through those 12 sons, the nation would be born. You know the story of them going down into Egypt. You know the story of their redemption from Exodus. And you know the story when God takes those people to Mount Sinai and enters into a covenant relationship with them. And he says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you will keep my covenant, and you know the covenant that he entered into with Israel on Mount Sinai, it was the ten words. It was the law of God. And he told the nation of Israel, in Leviticus, he said, if you'll keep the covenant, you'll live. He tells them that again in Nehemiah, if you'll keep the covenant, you'll live. Three times in Ezekiel chapter 20, if you keep the covenant, you'll live. And the rich young ruler comes to Christ, and he asks one of the most important questions any human being could ever ask. He says, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And what did the Lord Jesus say? Keep the covenant. Is it possible for any human being to keep the covenant? For sin is the transgression of the covenant law. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Did God give us that law so that we might earn salvation through our own obedience? Oh no. God gave us that covenant 
to the nation of Israel and wrote those ten words on every human being's heart to show us that we could not keep covenant. And that all of us have been impacted by the sin of Adam. It haunts us all. And we are unrighteous. And we need a righteousness outside of ourselves if we'll ever live. That covenant that he made with the nation of Israel, that old covenant, with all the typology and all of the worship, the tabernacle, which later became the temple, a symbol of God dwelling with his people. What does it take to dwell with God forever? It takes obedience to the covenant. But is it possible by us? Well, you know they disobeyed God and didn't even enter the land right away. They'd wander for 40 years. And when that generation is dead and the young people are grown up and it's time to enter the land, God comes to them a second time and gives them the covenant demands. What book of the Bible is that found in? Deuteronomy. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the covenant law. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, you need to do this. You need to go in that book and you need to highlight every reference to the word land. And you need to highlight every reference to the word heart. And you need to highlight every reference to the word repent. For the land was their inheritance. And God came to them. And over and over and over again. He promised that inheritance. But he also told them in the book of Deuteronomy. That if you do not keep the covenant. I'm going to scatter you among the nations of the world. And he said, Moses, as he's dying, coming to the end of his life, he says, I already know you're not going to keep the covenant. It's impossible for you to keep the covenant. And he says, I also know that you're going to be scattered around the nations of the world. And yet in that covenant, you saw the worship that pictures the lamb, the sin sacrifice, the trespass offering, the peace offering. You saw the house of God and how, how a drama is acted out during Yom Kippur that a high priest representing the people is the only one that can take us into the presence of God. You see all the pageantry of that old covenant. And you read the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in the Old Testament. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. It is the book the Lord Jesus quoted three times from. And I guarantee you that if you can understand the message of that book, you'll understand the message of the entire Bible. So how long did they stay in the land? So you read Torah. You read the first five books of Moses. And then you read Joshua where they get into their inheritance. And then you begin to read Judges. And starting right there in your Old Testament record, I want you to begin to note something. As you begin to read the balance of the book of the people and their history, you're going to notice that there is an emphasis in every single one of those books. You know what it is? It is their constant 
breaking of the covenant demands. As I read the Hebrew Bible, I'll write right in the margin. Oh, that's command number one they broke. Up oh, here's command number two. And three, and four, and five, and six, and seven, and eight, and nine. You'll read of it in Joshua. You'll read it in Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. You'll read through the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And what are they hammering over and over again? The inability of Israel to keep covenant. For there is something wrong with the human heart. We're impacted by the disobedience of Adam. We are undone. All of us. And God told his people. You'll be scattered. If you know your Old Testament history. You know that there are two major events that follow the exodus. That the word of God focuses on. And that first event in 722. When God takes ten of the northern tribes into captivity by the Assyrians. Why? Because they couldn't keep covenant. They didn't have righteousness. But thank God that Isaiah is on the scene and he's preaching to the people of God. You're going to go into captivity because of your disobedience to the covenant. But tucked right there in the center of Isaiah is a section called the Servant Songs. He became a servant. So that we would see that God keeps covenant. We can believe God. We can believe the maker of heaven and earth. And I'll never forget the day when reading through those chapters, reading through those servant songs, I came to chapter 42. And right in the heart of that chapter, we discover that the coming Messiah, get this, is called a covenant for the people. You can't keep it, you're going into captivity, but the covenant keeper is on his way. And he's a light to the nations too. And he repeats it again in chapter 49, that he's the covenant for the people. There's a covenant keeper, and he's on his way. He will come. And then in 586, when those last tribes are going into captivity to the land of Babylon, there's another prophet on the scene. He's the weeping prophet. He's Jeremiah. And guess what we find in his book? Inability to keep the covenant. You're being scattered around. But tucked right into that book is the reference to the new covenant work of Christ. He'll be the seed of Abraham. He'll fulfill the covenant demands of Moses. He'll be the lamb of sacrifice. And he'll be a descendant of David. You remember what David said? When God told David that you're going to have a descendant, David, 
and your descendant will be your savior. And he writes 110 Psalm and he says, Lord, you're my Lord and yet you're my seed. And he understood the gospel and he would write, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin, but blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and righteousness is imputed. What I am trying to say here tonight is that when you look at your Bible, which is a covenant book with a covenant structure, the purpose of it is to drive us all to the new covenant in Christ. And there's enough information in these Hebrew pages to let us identify who he is. The place of his birth. And do you know that the year of his death is given to us in this book hundreds of years before he ever came? Do you know that the region of Israel that he would minister in would be given to us? And my friends, it was Galilee of the Gentiles. And the nations of the world listened to him teach and preach. And the cry of the ages was for him to come. And guess what? God said he would. That he would reverse the curse. That he would be the seed of Shem. That he would be the seed of Abraham for all the nations. That he would be the righteous one, the righteous branch, the righteous servant, the Lamb of God. He said all of that, the descendant of David. And guess what? He is. So we can glorify God tonight. That God is trustworthy. And the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Do you believe God tonight? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior tonight? Then glorify God for that. Then may I hasten to say we need to look at His mercy. Christ became a servant of the Jewish people so that we Gentiles could glorify God for the mercy that is being shown to us. Mercy not only for Israel, not leniency for Israel alone, not compassion for his people alone, compassion from the God who is in all authority, not kindness for Israel alone, my friend, or concern for Israel's serious need of righteousness and forgiving grace. But that mercy and that compassion for us all. For Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Daniel writes, to the Lord our God belong mercy, 
and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against them. Deuteronomy would write, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And Paul would write in Ephesians that God is rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. And he would describe to Moses in Exodus 34 as he passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and graciousness, one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in Jonah, we read that he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And we would quote Jeremiah that the steadfast love of God never ceases and his mercies will never come to an end. For the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we would cry with the psalmist, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is who God is. That is His glory. He not only is powerful and can make the heavens, He not only keeps covenant and fulfills every one of His promises, but my friend, our God and Creator is merciful tonight. And what does that mean for you and me? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are those who wait for him. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, O return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. For I will not look on you with anger. For I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. For the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And we can say with David, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy 
of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. For that is spiritual worship. For he is the one who has saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, for none of us can keep the law. None of us have a righteousness that merits life. No, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We can glorify God tonight that the death sentence that was on humanity for its disobedience, that death sentence, that sin that came in and hovered over generations, the sin that God was willing to be patient with forbearance and overlook for thousands of years, willing to do that because that death sentence in the garden was paid for at the cross of Calvary. And you'll never understand Calvary until you look back into the garden. There on the cross of Calvary, the perfect, righteous, sinless servant was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And He suffered a wrath and turned the anger of God away from His people. And do you and I even understand what it was like for Him to hang there and become a sin offering and have the Father Abandon His own Son? You and I will never experience that if we are in Christ. All we'll know is His mercy forever and ever. Can we not glorify God for that? Can we not announce to the nations of the world that there's mercy for them too? Oh, sinner, come to Christ. You can depend on every single promise that God has made. He's a covenant-keeping God. And He will enter into covenant relationship with you in Christ. He is the covenant for His people. And if you read the fine lines of that covenant promise, you will discover that God says that your sin and your iniquity, He'll remember no more. What a covenant. What a promise. And that sin that would hang over our head like a dark cloud, troubling the soul, might cause you to ask, is there forgiveness with God? And the answer is, there is mercy with God. Will my disobedience hound me for eternity? Will God cause His face to turn away from me like it turned away from Cain? And the answer is, no, there is mercy with God. Will my rebellion forever be remembered 
like the constant churning of the tide, casting upon the shore of eternity its fomenting shame, reminding me over and over again of my own disobedience to God. No, my friend, there is mercy with our great God of glory. And I can't bear the thought of being cast from the presence of God. I can't bear the thought of being separated for the eternal ages to come. Is there mercy with God? Is there compassion for me in the midst of my need? And the answer is yes, there is mercy with God. And I will never forget the time I heard the song sung by Kevin Inafuku entitled, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Written by Augustus Poplati in the 1700s. The words changed a little bit about 25 years ago. But that song says this. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on my humble offering to bring. The judgments of your holy law with me have nothing to do for my Savior's obedience and blood. Hide all my transgressions from you. The work which your goodness began, the arm of your strength will complete. Your promise is yes and amen. It never was forfeited yet. The future or things that are now, no power below or above can make you your purpose forego or sever my soul from your love. For my name on the palms of your hands Eternity will never erase. Impressed on your heart, it remains. The marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne forever and ever secure. Forever and ever secure. Forever and ever secure. A debtor to mercy alone. The mercies of God. What a theme for my song. Oh, I never could number them more. They're more than the stars in the heavenly dome or the sands of the wave-beaten shore. For mercy's so great, what return can I make? For mercy's so constant and sure. I'll love him 
I'll serve him with all that I have as long as my life shall endure. They greet me at noon when I waken from sleep. They gladden my heart at the noon. They follow me on into shades of the night when the day with its labor is done. And then they're renewed in the morning. And then I looked. I looked into the heavens. And I heard heaven cry. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, the servant, ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our gods. They're going to reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven And every creature on earth, and every creature under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To the one who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, and forever. Amen. Amen. Glory be to God for this gospel that we have the delight of taking to the nations of the world.